0: Today we're going to talk about the atonement. You might ask, well, what is the atonement? Uh, one, one way I like to look at the atonement is to, to think of the, the word atonement and break it up into parts. Uh, that's a good way of thinking of it. Of it. Uh, think of it at-one-ment. See, the reality is every one of us in Romans 1-3 through 3 shows that the whole world is guilty that's the point of Romans chapters 1 through 3. Everybody's guilty before God. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Well, you say, well, what is the atonement? That's where God takes unreconciled sinners and reconciles sinners to Himself. By the way, that's not something you can do. Okay, The only thing we can do is believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You're not saved by works. You're saved because of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Atonement—that's atonement. Another way of a good definition that I found was this: Atonement is the work Christ did in His life and death to earn our salvation. Now, there, there's two important parts in that definition that I'm going to bring out today. It's it's the work that Christ did not only in His death. We we often think of that part. But Christ's life was important as well. Because the reality is, Christ lived the life that you should have lived. None of us live a perfect life. That's impossible. We all sin. We're born in sin. But Jesus lived the perfect life that you should have lived. And therefore, He earned the right to die the death that we all deserve to die. So atonement is the work that Christ did in His life and death and there was a purpose to it, was to earn our salvation. So I've got a series of questions I'm going to throw out to you today in an attempt to answer from Scripture. Number one is this. What was the ultimate cause that led to Christ dying for our sins? Now, there's more than one cause, and that's why the word ultimate is important there. What was the ultimate cause that led to Christ dying for our sins? There's two points i want to bring out from Scripture here. Number one, first... The love of God is a major cause of the atonement. The love of God. Of course, you know one of the most famous verses in the Bible. I hope you do anyway. I hope you have it memorized. John 3.16, which says, For God so loved the world. What did His love cause Him to do? According to John 3.16, that love caused God to give His only Son the greatest gift you and I could ever receive. And then our part is the end of verse 16, that whoever believes in Him, that's Jesus, should not perish but have eternal life. So the love of God is a cause for the atonement. Number two, the justice of God is a cause of the atonement. Okay, You have to understand, God is more than just love. Of course He's love. I mean, First John makes that statement, God is love. But God's far more than that. Far more complex. God is also justice. So the justice of God is a cause of the atonement. You, You say, why? Well, God's justice required that He find a way to pay the penalty of our sin. Remember, Romans tells us there are wages for sin. You earn something as a result of your sin. We're all sinners. What do you earn? What's the penalty? The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So God's justice required that He had to find a way to pay that penalty for our sin. Because if you died, that's not good enough. You're not perfect. That would never satisfy God's justice if you died. So unless the penalty was paid... God could not accept us into fellowship with Him. Because He's a holy God, you'd never get to heaven unless the holy God dealt with your sin. The Apostle Paul explains that this was why God sent Christ to be a propitiation. Now, that's a big word. Uh, if If you're wondering, well, what is propitiation? What is it? Well, a good definition of propitiation is this. A propitiation is a sacrifice that bears God's wrath so that God becomes favorably disposed toward us. So not only is Jesus Christ a wrath absorber, that in the process of absorbing God's wrath, it had a, it had a good effect upon us. Not only did you not receive God's wrath, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, So if you're in Jesus Christ, you've been saved, you've put your faith in Christ alone, then no condemnation is coming to you. So why why is that? Because God the Father put His wrath on His Son and then imputed Christ's righteousness to you. That's propitiation. It's a sacrifice that bears God's wrath, so then God looks on you in a favorable way. Why did he do this? Well, Romans 3.25, hopefully you have your Bibles there. If you, if you don't have a Bible, it's on the screen. But Romans 3.25 says this, referring to Jesus Christ here. says, "...whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because of His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins." Let me just make a few statements from that wonderful, powerful verse. Uh, of course, Romans was written by the Apostle Paul, and here Paul says that God had been forgiving sins in the Old Testament. He had been covering sins through through the s- blood sacrifices, but no penalty was paid in the Old Testament. Hebrews shows that. Uh, by the way, the fact that would make people wonder whether God was just if... If, uh, if 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 simply doing sacrifice could totally forgive sin and pay the penalty of sin, people would wonder: Is God just? Well, after all, could a just God do that sort of thing? Romans three tells us why God sent Christ to die and pay the penalty for our sins. If you go to the very next verse, verse twenty six, Romans three twenty six answers why. God sent Christ to die and the penalty for our sins. Romans uh, 3.26 says, It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Therefore, what, what do we see here? We see both the love and the justice of God Be, or I should say, are the ultimate cause of the atonement. Both of them. Not one by itself, but both God's love and His justice are the ultimate cause of the atonement. Our second question is this Was the atonement necessary? Was it necessary? In other words, you could ask the question this way, was there any other way for God to save human beings than through the means that He did? Which, of course, was sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to die in the place of unbelievers. And before answering this question, I think it's kind of, before we kind of get the cart before the horse here, I think it's important to realize that it wasn't necessary for God to save anyone. Do you realize that? God didn't have to save you or anybody else. He would have been just in sending us all to hell. Okay? That's what we deserve. Okay? So for some people, some people love going around saying, well, that's not fair. You know, They talk about God not being fair. Well, you don't want what's fair. You don't want what is just. God could have chosen with perfect justice to have just left us in the awful condition that we were born in. Praise God He didn't do that, if you're a believer. He could have chosen to save nobody, and that would have been completely just. So in in this sense, the atonement was not absolutely necessary. Okay, God didn't have to do that. But once God did decide to save human beings, well, then there was no other way for God to do this than through the death of His Son. That was, by the way, that was plan A. God didn't have a plan B. <laughs> there was no other plan for the atonement. The atonement was not absolutely necessary, but having said that, as a consequence of God's decision that He was going to save some human beings, Then, in that sense, the atonement was necessary. When God decides He's going to do something, then it has to be necessary. Let's look at some Scripture to prove this point, though, okay? Don't don't take my word for it. Uh, To to show you that, in this sense, the atonement was necessary, let's look at, uh, for example, in Matthew 26. This is what Jesus said when He was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. So these are Jesus' words. Jesus said, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from Me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as You will. Okay? That's what Jesus said. Now, I've underlined those words, if it be possible. Well, why did I underline that? Because I think, I think Jesus' prayer here shows it was not possible for Jesus to avoid the death of the cross. If there was some other way, then Jesus probably would have picked the other way. But He didn't, because there was no other way. There was no other possible way to save human beings. So that's why He went through with it. It was God's will. Well, in another passage, uh, Jesus said something similar, and this, this one's taking place after His resurrection in Luke chapter 24. And the context here is is Jesus, he's he's on this road, and he's talking with with two disciples as they're walking along on the road to to Emmaus. They and and these two disciples were sad that that Jesus had died. They didn't understand what was going on. And I want you to see Jesus' response to these two two disciples who are sad that Jesus had died. Here's what Jesus says He says, Oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? Why did Christ say that? He understood that there was no other way than for God to save us, than for Christ to die in our place. Those are my words there. That's why Christ said that. He knew it was necessary. <laughs> he had to die in our place. He had to die the death that we deserve to die. Question number three for you is this. What is the nature of the atonement? What is the nature of the atonement? Uh, again, I find the theologians very helpful in, in thinking about the nature of the atonement. And on this particular question here, uh, we're going to look at two aspects uh, two aspects of the nature of the atonement. Theologians uh, have, have broken these two aspects up into Christ's active obedience and His passive obedience. Okay? Which kind of matches up with the definition of the atonement. That it was in His life and in His death that He saves people. Okay, So, so let's think about the first one here. Christ's obedience for us, which, which some theologians call His active obedience. When He was, when he was on this earth some 2,000 years ago, He actively obeyed His Father. Uh, he, he obeyed. So if Christ... Now, let's, let's think about this, because this is important. Because if Christ had only earned forgiveness of sins for us, then we wouldn't merit heaven, okay? Okay? If all he did was just die on a cross, it's not good enough. Our guilt would have been removed, but we would simply be in the same position that Adam and Eve were before they did anything good or bad. They'd just kind of be uh, morally neutral. You know, that's, that's the way Adam and Eve were before they did anything good or bad. Just kind of morally neutral, uh, before, before they actually had a time of probation, if you will. That's what we would be if Christ had just died on the cross and hadn't lived and and had this act of obedience going on. So to have their fellowship with God made sure forever, Adam and Eve had to pass probation, so to speak. They had to actively obey God, which, of course, they didn't do, did they? They didn't perfectly obey God for, for, a, for a period of time. Sadly, you know, Genesis chapter 3 shows Adam and Eve sinned and disobeyed God. And so, for this reason here, Christ then had to live a life of perfect obedience to God the Father, which of course He did. And, and by doing that, He did something for us which is incredibly important, which is earn righteousness for us. We need Christ's righteousness imputed to us. He had to obey the law for his whole life and he did it on our behalf because we can't do it. He lived the life that we should have lived. He was perfectly obedient. And because he did that, then that perfect obedience is counted to us. You see this idea in several places in Scripture. For example, uh, this, this, in fact, this is why the Apostle Paul says his goal is to be found in Christ. In Philippians 3.9 it says, "...be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ." The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul wanted to be found in Christ. He, he understood that, that, that all of his so-called things that he thought was good, in fact, he called it a, a pile of rubbish that that's what it was worth it was worthless all these things he thought were important ended up becoming worthless but what but what he found out he what he really needed was Christ and his righteousness that's why he wanted to be found in him he didn't want his righteousness so it's not just moral neutrality that paul knows he needs from christ that's not good enough being morally neutral is not good enough to get you to heaven he, Paul knew he needs more than his sins forgiven. He needs more than a, than a so-called clean slate. You know, having having the whiteboard marked, you know, taking all the black marker off the whiteboard, so to speak, is not good enough. So what does he need? Paul recognized he needed a positive moral righteousness, which which he couldn't do. It had to come from Christ. He knew he cannot he knew it couldn't come from himself, but notice Paul says it came through faith in Christ. That's how it comes, through faith in Christ. Romans five nineteen, uh, kind of backing up this idea, says this for as by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Well that's Christ. So you inherited a sin nature from Adam, your father Adam. You can thank him for that. By the way, don't be too judgmental on him, because you would have made the same mistake that Adam made if you were there. But the same idea of of sin being inherited, we, we get this idea here that, well, through Jesus Christ's obedience, guess what? That can also be counted to you. And that's what Christ did for us. So as you can see, Christ did more than just die for us, didn't he? He also became our righteousness before God. So if you're a Christian, God the Father looks at you. He no longer sees your sin. He sees Christ's righteousness, and that is pleasing to him, and that now he can look on you in a favorable way. So he became our righteousness before God. So unless he had done this for us, we would... Uh, have no record of obedience, God wouldn't be able to look at us in a, in a favorable way. His merits would not be given to us, and we would not have eternal life without Christ's righteousness being imputed to us. And by way, by way of application here, we need to ask ourselves, we ought to ask ourselves, whose lifelong record of righteousness are you trusting in? Your own? Whose record of righteousness are you trusting in? Whose record of obedience are you trusting in? Your own or someone else's? Okay? Hopefully it's not your own. Hopefully it's Jesus Christ and his obedience and his righteousness that you're trusting in. Well, let's move on to the second aspect of the atonement's nature. We we, we see, first of all, it was his his act of obedience that. Christ lived the perfect life that we should have lived. Theologians call the second aspect his passive obedience. It's when Christ suffered. Christ suffered. Well, how did Christ suffer? Well, he suffered in in several ways. Number one, Christ suffered uh, throughout his whole life when he was on this earth. In a broad sense, the penalty that Christ bore was suffering in both of his body and his soul throughout his life. Though Christ's suffering, of course, ended in His death on the cross, His whole life in this fallen world involved suffering. Just think about that for a moment. A holy God humbled Himself. He condescended to to the level of His creation. <laughs> he gave up the glories of heaven and, of all things, took on the form of man. Okay, He had, he had to put up with... Being a baby, of all things. Those of you who are mothers and fathers, you've had to look after babies. You know what that's like. He was a baby. He humbled himself to that point. Being born in a manger and, and having to, to put up with sinful parents, even though he was perfect. And and then all the other things he had to deal with. I mean, uh, we, we see in Matthew chapter 4, for example, Jesus endured tremendous suffering when he was assaulted for those 40 days by the attacks of Satan himself. That's just one example. Isaiah 53, verse 3, uh, in predicting the coming of Messiah, Isaiah actually said there that, that Jesus, this Messiah, would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That's the way he was. So he suffered throughout his life. Uh, of course, we often think of His suffering in the, the pain of the cross. Well, let's, let's, let's try to think of this a little bit more deeply, hopefully, than we normally do. Uh, how uh, what, what kind of pain did He experience on the cross? Well, the one we typically think of is what? When we think of Jesus suffering pain on the cross, the one we typically think of is the physical pain and death. Well, by... Being crucified, Jesus would have experienced excruciating pain, okay, no doubt about that. Uh, death by crucifixion was maybe the most horrible form of execution that's ever been devised by man. It was a very slow death by suffocation, suffocation, and it was extremely painful. Those Roman soldiers knew exactly where to nail the guy on the cross, so that he would suffer for a long period of time with excruciating pain. They knew where the nerves were, and they put the nails right through the nerves. In some cases, we know uh, throughout history that uh, men would survive for several days on a cross. They would nearly suffocate uh, several times throughout those several days, but they wouldn't quite die. And so this is why that when the Bible talks about, you remember the, uh, the, the Roman soldier come by, came by and he broke the legs of the guys who were next to Jesus. Why would they do that? Because if, if they could use their legs to push themselves up, they could get a breath and they would keep on living. But they didn't want them to keep on living. They wanted them to die, and that's why the, they broke their legs. But they didn't break Jesus' legs. Why? Because he was already dead. There was a physician, he wrote in the Journal of the American Medical Association back in 1986, and uh, he, he was, I don't know if this guy was a Christian or not, but he was, he, he was kind of studying what the Bible says uh, about Jesus and, and his death, his execution by crucifixion, and, and what, what, what would involve that. Well, here's, here's a medical doctor's explanation of death by crucifixion, and he says this, quote, Adequate exhalation required lifting the body by pushing up on the feet and by flexing the elbows. However, this maneuver would place the entire weight of the body on the tarsals, which is your ankle joint area, and then would produce searing pain. Furthermore, flexion of the elbows would cause rotation of the wrist about the iron nails and cause fiery pain along the damaged median nerves, muscle cramps, and pareth- uh, however you say they were, parethesis of the outstretched and uplifted arms would add to the discomfort. As a result, each respiratory effort would become agonizing and tiring and lead eventually to asphyxia, or basically they'd stop breathing, okay? So the guy died. All right, so that's one doctor's explanation. The, the point is this, okay? Uh, we all know Jesus suffered pain. And by the way, he chose that form of execution. Philippians mentions that when he humbled himself. It says he humbled himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross. He got to pick his form of execution, and he picked probably the worst one available. Well, there's a second aspect of Christ's suffering we need to think about, and that's the pain of bearing sin. He had to bear sin while he was on that cross. Not only was he bearing physical torment but he was bearing sin and this was more awful than the physical pain that he was enduring and we need to remember that jesus was perfectly holy he is a holy god and he's bearing sin while he was on the cross we need to remember that he hated sin with his entire being it's it just goes against his nature because he's holy Yet the Bible says Jesus took on Himself all the sins of everybody who would be saved. And all that He hated most deeply, the Bible says, was poured out on Him. Scripture frequently says our sins were put on Christ. Let me give you a few examples here. For example, Isaiah 53.6 says, The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53.12, He bore the sin of many. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made Him to be sin. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us by becoming a curse for us. 1 Peter 2.24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. Do you get the point? The point is, Jesus was bearing sin, and that was painful. Psychologically painful. There's a third aspect to Christ's suffering that we also need to think about, and, and that is abandonment. Aban- he was abandoned. He was abandoned in several ways. And, and, and this, for Jesus, is, is again, it's, it's ramping up the pain, so to speak. The physical pain is bad, yes. Bearing sin is even worse, but abandonment must have been, it must have even been worse than that. And it's aggravated by the fact that Jesus is facing this pain alone. As soon as Jesus was arrested, Matthew 26 says this, that all the disciples forsook Him and fled. (laughs) I mean, these are the the guys He's poured His life into for three years. And and when He he needs them the most, they're gone. Ever happened to you? ever pour your life into somebody you you give your your blood, your sweat, your tears, your thoughts, your prayers, your money, your time, your everything, you're pouring it into somebody and they stab you in the back not literally but figuratively that is extremely painful well as if that wasn't bad enough by far but even far worse than desertion by friends was the fact that Jesus was deprived of His closeness to the Father. Remember, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. <laughs> the Trinity means there's three of them. He's the second. He's the Son. And you, can, you get this, this the sense and the feel of this from Christ's cry from the cross. Matthew 27, verse 46 says this, About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you get the feeling that he's in pain here? You should. He's feeling the abandonment. For, for once in all of eternity, he, he's, that, that close relationship that he has in the Trinity is, is severed in some way. So he's feeling abandonment. Number four, there's a fourth aspect of Christ's suffering. Christ had to bear the the wrath of God. Even more difficult than physical pain, sin-bearing, abandonment was the pain of bearing God's wrath. And he's getting getting 100% of it. As Jesus bore the guilt of our sins, God the Father poured out on Jesus Christ the fury of His wrath. That's what propitiation is. He's, Jesus is he's absorbing that wrath coming from God the Father. In other words, Jesus became the object of the intense hatred of sin, which you and I deserve, but fortunately we're, we're not going to get that. And So God had for, for, uh, for all of, of time, since the beginning of the world, this wrath was, was being stored up and, and now it's unleashed on His Son. The Bible tells us God put forward Christ as a propitiation. Romans chapter three says. You say again, what does that mean? In case you've forgotten the definition already, propitiation means it's it's a sacrifice where Jesus bears God's wrath to the very end, and in so doing, changes God's wrath toward us into favor. Romans again, Romans three twenty five and twenty six says this that God put forward Christ as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So what do we see here? What do we see here? Well, several things. At the cross, when Christ died at Calvary, the fury of all of that stored-up wrath was, was, was laid on Jesus Christ. It was unleashed on Jesus Christ. Imagine that kind of power. The kind of power that created the universe is unleashed on the One whom He loved the most. That's what happened. You say, who required Christ to pay the penalty for our sins? Who or what required Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for our sins? Well, the answer is given by Scripture. And the answer given by Scripture is that the penalty was actually inflicted by God the Father. God the Father inflicted the penalty on his own son. It was God's justice, in other words, that required that sin had to be paid for. God doesn't overlook sin. You say, prove it. Well, here's some Scriptures that prove this. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake He made Him, that's Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Isaiah 53.6, The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. Whose will? It was God's will to crush His Son. Well, did Christ pay the the full penalty of sin when He died on the cross? Did He pay the full penalty of sin? This is a vitally important question. And the fact that Christ, by the way, The fact that He only suffered for a limited time shows and proves to us that yes, He did pay the full penalty of sin. His suffering was sufficient payment for sin. The fact that He was resurrected three days later after His death shows that God the Father accepted the sacrifice. God the Father knew it was sufficient. Full payment was done. The Bible repeats this theme over and over again and again in Hebrews. Let me just read a, a few verses here from Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 24. It says, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer Himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. So again, we see this idea that because Christ suffered only for a limited time rather than for for any uh, for, for an eternal amount of time, it shows that God the Father accepted the sacrifice and that payment was made in full. Well, how did Christ's death meet the needs of Christians? It did meet the needs of Christians. His death did meet needs, but in what ways? Well, there's four ways that we need to think about. Okay? okay, Here's where the rubber meets the road. Okay, Here's where it gets kind of practical and powerful and and these are, these are just some things I suggest you use to preach the Gospel to yourself every day this week. All right. Number one, we deserve to die as the penalty for sin. The Bible says in Romans that the wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. We deserve physical death. We deserve spiritual death. And we deserve eternal death. So there's three kinds of death that we deserve. And if you don't get that, that's only, it's only because of the person and work of Christ. So, we deserve to die as the penalty for sin, the Bible says. Then we need, we need some help here then, don't we? And to pay the penalty of death that we deserve, Christ died as our sacrifice. That's what Hebrews 9.26 says. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin. How? How do He do that? by the sacrifice of Himself. That's how He did it. He put away sin by His sacrifice. He was the Lamb of God. Well, number two, we deserve to bear God's wrath against sin. As if just dying you know, and having this penalty for sin is not bad enough, we deserve to bear God's wrath against sin. So to remove us from the wrath that we deserve... Christ died in our place. He was our our propitiation. He absorbed God's wrath. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So He absorbs the wrath, so then God the Father can now look at us in a favorable way. Number three. How did Christ's death meet the needs of Christians? Well, unbelievers are separated from God by their sins, the Bible says. And so to overcome our separation from God, we needed someone to provide reconciliation. We needed someone to to heal the relationship that's been broken, to bring us back into fellowship with God. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says this, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Oh, that's good. So you can be reconciled through faith in Jesus Christ. And then as a result of that, then you get to be a reconciler. You get to tell others how they can be reconciled to God. Oh, that's awesome, isn't it? Well, number four. Unbelievers are in bondage to sin and to the kingdom of Satan. Unbelievers are in bondage to sin and to the kingdom of Satan. So so they need some help then, don't they? What do they need? Unbelievers then need to be redeemed, or, or there's a word in Scripture we see is ransomed. Need to be redeemed or ransomed? You say, what is what is a ransom? Okay, if you think of some some terrorists or pirates or or someone, you know, you know, they, they, if they were to kidnap you and then they and then they and they were to tell your your parents or someone or the New Zealand government, say, hey, we we we've kidnapped you, whoever you are, and uh, we want so much money. That's a ransom. A ransom is the price paid to redeem someone from bondage or captivity. And that's what Jesus did. It talks about this in Scripture, Mark 10:45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He paid the price and freed believers from bondage and captivity. Well, the next question is a, is a touchy issue. Right, I want to end with this one. Okay? This, this is a, this is a, a fun one. Okay? It's, it's a mind-boggling one. It's, it's going to make you think. All right? Sadly, it's a very divisive issue. It shouldn't be, but it is. And it's the, the question is this. What is the extent of the atonement? And by extent of the atonement, I mean this. You could you word the question another way. Uh, let me put it this way. When Christ died, did Christ pay for the sins of the entire human race? Or did he only pay for the sins of those who he knew would be saved? Do you see how this is a divisive issue and how it's a really touchy one? Uh, in fact, sadly, I've even lost friends over this, this one. That's how, and it really hits home to me. Okay, um, so so let me let me address the argument for you in case you're not familiar with this argument. To what extent is the atonement for exactly? Who did Christ die for? Okay, who did Christ die for? All right, that's the question. Well, there there's essentially two main arguments here. Okay, some theologians uh, like Wayne Grudem have divided the argument up into the the non-Reformed argument and the and the Reformed argument. Other theologians divide the argument up into, into their, well, you have general redemption and particular redemption. Okay, So the non-Reformed argument is the general redemption argument. And, and here's how Wayne Grudem words the argument this way. He says, quote, Non-Reformed people argue that the gospel offer in Scripture is repeatedly made to all people and for this offer to be genuine, the payment for sins must have already been made and must be actually available to all people. They also say that if the, if the people whose sins Christ paid for are limited, then the free offer of the gospel is also limited. And the offer of the gospel cannot be made to all mankind without exception. End quote. So that's kind of summing up the argument, okay? That's the general redemption or the non-reformed argument. Now here's the reformed argument, or the argument for particular redemption. Again, I'm quoting from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. He says this, "...reformed people argue that if Christ's death actually paid for the sins of every person who ever lived, then there is no penalty left for anyone to pay, and it necessarily follows that all people will be saved without exception." For God could not condemn to eternal punishment anyone whose sins are already paid for. That would be demanding double payment, and it would therefore be unjust. In answer to the objection that this compromises the free offer of the gospel to every person, Reformed people answer that we do not know who they are who will come to trust in Christ, for only God knows that. As far as we are concerned, The free offer of the gospel is to be made to everyone without exception, end quote. By the way, I'm not going to tell you where I stand on this particular one, okay? I'm going to play devil's advocate with you, all right? Um, Obviously, some of my former friends know where I stand on this one, but uh, one reason I want to bring the argument up is to, if you're not familiar with it, to at least introduce you to it. And the other thing I want to do is to show you that while there seems to be a lot of division, there shouldn't be because there's a lot of things that we actually have in common with people whom we don't see eye to eye on this. Now, there's, a, there's there's scriptures that support both these views, okay? And, and I'm not going to take the time to show those to you right now, okay? Um, if you want to talk more about this later, I'll, I'll have, I'm happy to do so, but... I'm going to just skip over the arguments and the scripture they use, but, but, the, but I do want to end with this, is that there are a lot of points of agreement with both sides of the argument here. Okay? Uh, w- what often happens in arguments is, is th- there's a lot of finger pointing going on, and uh, what, what, ends up, what, what ends up happening is we, we lose sight of the, what is in common, what do we actually agree upon, we do this in all of our relationships. There is a lot of agreement here, okay? Um, and you don't have to see eye to eye with every brother and sister in Christ, okay? You're, in fact, you're not going to. Now, let me just mention some of the points of agreement here. For example, you got the non-reformed people and the reformed people, or the general redemptionists and the particular redemptionists, okay? Here's what they all agree on. Wherever you come down on that side of the argument, you're in agreement with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Number one, not all people will be saved. Number two, a free offer of the gospel can rightly be made to every person ever born. Number three, eternal life is a genuine offer. Four, Christ's death has infinite merit and is sufficient to pay the penalty of sin. Number five, to be saved, you must believe in Christ. And number six, all who come to Christ for salvation will be saved. Okay? So so even with my brothers and sisters in Christ whom I don't see eye to eye with, we are in agreement on that. We are in agreement on the essentials of the gospel. Okay? Now I'll remind you when you are in agreement on the essentials, there must be unity. In non essentials, there can be diversity but in all things there should be love. Sadly, there's not much love flowing around the the world of Christianity on on this particular issue. A lot of division. Divisiveness. You you might be asking me at this point, well, which view of the atonement is correct? Is it general redemption or particular redemption? I'm not going to tell you what I think. (laughs) But what I can say is this, is that uh, in regards to the, the, here's the question, did Christ die for His people only, or did Christ die for all people? What's the answer? Well, the answer is actually, uh, I, I've, I've changed several times my view on this throughout the, the years that I've been a Christian, I'll be honest with you. As I'm growing in Christ and learning more about God's Word and His, his person, His work, His ways, uh, I'm, I'm changing. I'm trying to be teachable. But let me just say that this, though, in regards to this question here. In some senses, both views are true. Now, that might be a shock to some of you, because we, we often like to be dogmatic. We, we love our position, and, and we make it a hill to die on. <laughs> you know what I mean? But in some senses, both views are true here. What often happens is the argument has, has been confused, We don't actually define terms. And what actually ends up happening is sometimes you get the non-Reformed people and Reformed people, they're arguing about two different things when they actually think they're arguing about the same thing. Anyway, I'm not going to go into details on that. But that's what often happens. They can become confused. There's various senses that can actually be given for that word for. Did Christ die for his people or the whole world? All right? There's different senses. Okay, The statement Christ died for His people only can be understood to mean that Christ died to actually pay the penalty for all the sins of His people. That's a true statement. So in that sense, it's true. But then on the other side, the sentence Christ died for all people is true if it means this. Christ died to make salvation available to all people. The Bible says whosoever will may come right the offer of the gospel is available to everyone so if that's what you mean by that then that's true what I've found in in controversies and and often useless disputes is it seems to be created by a critical fault-finding attitude okay here's my exhortation to you this is one reason I'm bringing up the argument is Please, humble yourself, be teachable, be loving and kind to your brother and sister in Christ whom you don't see eye to eye with. Okay? Coming with a critical fault-finding, judgmental spirit and thinking that you got it all right and everybody else is wrong kind of an attitude is not helpful. In fact, it's sinful. Okay? Okay? So please don't make this an issue or a, or a test of accepted belief. Uh, some, some people think it's, you know, you know you're not orthodox if, if you don't believe you know, this way on the extent of the atonement. My friends, let me just say this. The extent of the atonement is not an essential of the faith. No matter which side of the argument you fall on, it's not an essential of the faith. It's a non-essential yes it's part of the gospel okay but but the reality is scripture is not crystal clear and in fact scripture gives kind of both sides of the argument depending on what you mean by that word for scripture never and in fact scripture never singles this issue out as a doctrine of major importance but sadly on both sides i've i've seen people on both sides on the non-reformed side and also the, The reform side, they make it a hill to die on. They make it an issue of separation. And they become very unloving toward me or somebody else who doesn't see eye to eye with them on this. Okay? So if Scripture doesn't make it a doctrine of major importance, then should we? I propose to you we shouldn't. Okay? I propose to you that this is a non essential. So in non essentials, there should be diversity. And in fact, we've, we've had people in this congregation before who, who I don't see eye to eye with on this issue and other things. And you know what? I still love that person. They're still welcome to be members of the church. This is a non-essential. Now, to be a member of the church, we need to be in agreement on the essentials, of course, because in essentials, that's how you have unity. But even with somebody who you don't see eye to eye with, still, what, we, what, what should be our attitude, Right? In the essentials, unity; and non-essentials, diversity. In all things, love, humility. Uh, it, it's a good idea to come, to come to somebody who you don't see eye to eye with. You know, ask him, "Why do you believe that?" Instead of just attacking him, like too often we do, we come down hard on people. We drive them away. Why, why do you believe this? You know how, how do you see how do you see scripture? I mean, I. This is how I see Scripture. Am, am I wrong? You know, Somebody's humble is going to question what they believe. Come to, come to Scripture and be like a Berean. Okay? Somebody who's humble is going to go to other people and, and pick their brains, so to speak. All right? Have discussions. Those, those are healthy things. We can edify one another in that process. Be like an iron sharpening iron. So my friend... Yes, in the essentials we need unity, but, but please understand, this is not an essential, so there should be diversity. Okay, there's nothing wrong with fellowshipping with another Christian who, uh, you know, whichever side of the argument you fall on, to fellowship, for example, with that other person, or to, to have them as a church member within our church. Nothing wrong with that. To fellowship with other churches whom you may not see eye to eye with on this particular issue. And so as we, as we do fellowship with other brothers and sisters in Christ, God calls us to love one another. And Jesus says, by this, the world will know that you are my disciple. What does the world think when they see us divided and fighting and attacking each other over minor issues like the extent of the atonement? We, we, we're just Sometimes we nitpick too much, okay? All right? Some of you, this might, might be a huge issue. My suggestion is go to God in prayer. Search the scriptures to see if if this is really a major issue to God. I'm sure God knows the answer, by the way. <laughs> I don't claim to know it all. Um, but remember, in the essentials, there must be unity. In non-essentials, diversity in all things love. Let's pray.